I'm Major Robinson. Leslie Messer. Mary Stranahan. Senator Dwayne Ackney. Marcy McLean in Billings, Montana. In, in Helena, Montana. Colstrip, Montana. Sydney, Montana. From Arley, Montana. And you are listening. You are listening. And you're listening to. And you are listening to Listen First. Listen First. Listen First. You are listening to the podcast Listen First Montana. Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. So in 1960, my dad died. My mother was 35 years old, had three kids, you know, 12, 10, and 6, and the family business was a bar. What could possibly go wrong? And so just about anything that you can conceive of in your mind that went wrong, you know, from from copious amounts of alcohol to my mother being abused by men to gunshots and the sheriff digging slugs out of the wall of our kitchen and everything. Yeah, that that was my life. Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jerry Evans, Dr. Evans has been a regular instructor in Leadership Montana classes for over 10 years. He holds a PhD in Psychology and Information Science from Claremont University and has been a professor in the College of Business at the University of Montana since 1987. We're actually recording in the College of Business today, which is funny for me because I was a student of Jerry's in the classrooms just downstairs just a few years ago. So I'm, I'm very grateful to be here with you today uh, Jerry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, I think I recruited you into the MBA program when you were in Leadership Montana. <laughs> and it's amazing, you know, we, we from the College of Business, uh, Dawn Hambrick, who is the director of our MBA program, uh, she went through the program and the number of students that have, have, have been in our program and gotten their MBA and also overlap with Leadership Montana is actually quite a sub-cohort within, uh, within the Leadership Montana alumni network and the University of Montana MBA alumni network. Well, I'm proud to be a part of that group, Jerry. So I want to start by going all the way back to your roots in Swan Lake. And something you said to me the other day when we talked about you growing up there, you said that you were a bit of a community project and that sort of many community members contributed to your upbringing. Can you tell us a bit about your story growing up in Swan Lake? Sure. Uh, We moved to Swan Lake, our family, uh, in 1956. So I would have been seven years old going into the second grade. And we had Moved from Great Falls, where my dad had an, you know, where my dad was born, and my grandmother was born in Belt in like 1896 or something like that, and and so uh, we moved to, to Swan Lake. It was 20 miles of dirt road, either from Big Fork or from where the pavement ended, uh, north of Seely Lake, to get to Swan Lake. I mean, it was, I mean, it was 
out in the boondocks. And we bought a cabin camp that had 12 rental cabins. And then we weren't there very long, and then we bought a bar across the street. So we kind of had, I mean, it was the prototypical, you know, 50s Montana resort. You know, a rental cabin with, with outhouses and wood stoves and a bar across the street. And in the summer, logging trucks going by every five minutes, it seemed, just throwing up these clouds of dust that would take, you know, 10 minutes to dissipate. And, of course, then another truck would come. And so, so it was kind of an idyllic life. My brother uh, Chuck and I—he was two years older than than I. Yeah, I mean, it was—I mean, we had chores. We had to pull the boats up at night so they wouldn't drift out. And but we had our own boat and motor, and we had all the mountains to hike in and the lake and and all of that. And so it was kind of idyllic. And then in 1960, June 23rd, my dad drops out of a heart attack parents really poorly because my brother just died in January from heart failure and this summer I'm going back to Mayo Clinic in July for my third heart surgery Uh, so yeah it tends to be a weak part of us but obviously that you know threw our lives into chaos and when when we model the class member conversations uh, and a lot of times when I'm introduced, I say, so in 1960, my dad died. My mother was 35 years old, had three kids, you know, 12, 10, and 6, and the family business was a bar. What could possibly go wrong? And so just about anything that you can conceive of in your mind that went wrong, you know, from, from copious amounts of alcohol to my mother being abused by men to gunshots and the sheriff digging slugs out of the wall of our kitchen and everything. Yeah, that, that was my life. So our family really disintegrated. And my brother and I and my sister, we found kind of other families and other people that started contributing to our lives. And as I look back on my life, I see these people, you know, really, you know, my dad was gone. My mother was trying to survive, you know, financially at, at the, running the bar. And uh, so I would have these people that would kind of come and, I, and I know when I talked to you about this earlier, I, I kind of envision it as, you know, doing the giant slalom down the, you know, down the mountain, and you have these gates. You have these people in your lives that kind of vector your life a little bit one to another and who really made contributions to my life. And there were, you know, kind of people all over the Swan Valley and the Flathead Valley, you know, in one way or another that kind of vectored my life. And I, from them, I picked up some skill. I picked up some interests. I think I probably have some value in me that kind of wants to do that for others. You know, I really think ultimately, you know, our life is kind of a bit of this dot-to-dot puzzle, but it's where the dots are people. Mm-hmm. And they come into our lives. Again, important to invite to stranger because, you know, some of those people m- might be people we wouldn't initially seek out. And yet when our paths cross and we're open and we're curious you know, they just make contributions to our lives. And so I like making the contribution, but I think it was because a lot of people made pretty significant contributions to my life along the way. Mm. Thank you for sharing that story. I'm hearing words like 
curiosity and openness and contribution, all values. And I want to go back just a bit to a conversation we started just that you and I started just before we hit record just a few minutes ago. We were talking about this exercise in Leadership Montana where each person is given a set of cards. Each card has a different value written on it. And you sort through your deck of cards until you get down to your top five, your top five values. And I just want to bring that conversation back up and ask what comes to mind when you think about that. You know, I did those card sorts that we did in the master's class. I did them with my two sons. And and uh, that was so illuminating to me to see how they did that. And... Uh, you know, and so my son, the musician, you know, things like uh, creativity and loyalty and, and things like that came out really strong. And for my, for my son, who is the, you know, the, the director of, you know, fitness programs and things for, you know, this, you know, uh, who's been in corporate fitness his whole career, it's things like, accomplishment and success and competition and things like that. And it just it just really authenticated the process of doing these values things. And again, I Chantel and I are such a good example of this because Chantel and I are both ESTJs on the Myers Briggs. So we're, you know, extroverted, sensing, thinking, you know, judging, plan, you know, plan the work, work the plan. But we don't have a single value in common. And so it just shows how these are two kind of unique dimensions. So one of them is our preferences that the Myers Briggs picks up, the other is our values. Uh-huh. And it's just another lens another CT scan slice of you, you know, that is, you know, also you. I think it's a wonderful exercise. I mean, our values really do drive us. Mm -hmm. And again, when I do the Myers-Briggs, I I always caution people that you don't want to reify this. You don't want to, you know, say this is the pigeonhole that I fit in because it's just one glimpse of you uh, when I was in high school, I never, I never understood that I liked this. But we did mechanical drawing in a freshman in high school shop class, and of course, you look at something and you look at it from the different perspectives, and you draw it from these different perspectives, and you see it looks different depending on the angle that you that you uh, view it from. And so I, I, I say about the Myers Briggs, this is just one look at you. And it can be very useful because it tells you how you prefer to function along these particular dimensions. Uh, but the values thing is another look at you. And in, in terms of, you know, what some of your core values are, in terms of what are things that are really important to you. And then, of course, we do the Thomas Kilman, which is the conflict uh, style. And that gives, that gives you another glimpse of yourself. And and then in, in uh, Leadership Montana last weekend in the flagship class in Billings, I I rolled this part of the curriculum out for the first time. I always did kind of an ethics talk, but I added this stakeholder ethic side of it. And, and I love this story, and I, I put this up as a slide, which is the, the story of the 
five visually impaired individuals from the subcontinent of India who encounter an elephant. And they each get a different part of the elephant. You know, one of them gets the trunk, one gets the ear, one gets a tusk, you know, one gets a leg, one gets the, you know, the belly, and one gets the tail. And, and because they can't see each other's, uh, you know, data, they get in this big argument about, you know, what this beast is. And, of course, they all have a different perspective. Yeah. And, and so uh, then in one version of the story, uh, you know, a wise person comes along and says, well, what if you're all right? Instead of saying how your descriptions of the beast differ from one another, how about if you're all right? And then, of course, that changes the nature of the conversation. And, of course, in Leadership Montana, we had talked about invite the stranger and learn in public, you know, to, to see the world from other people's perspectives. And I really believe in terms of ethical decision-making, when we think about stakeholders for a decision, a position, a direction that we go, you know, in an organization, my premise is, is it's virtually impossible to make an ethical decision if you don't first walk around the issue and see it from the perspective of each of the different stakeholders. And I, and I caution the class that uh, this certainly doesn't make decision-making easier because it's so much easier to stay, you know, holding on to the tusk of the elephant and insisting that the elephant is like a spear or holding on to the tail and insisting the elephant is like a, ta- like a snake. It's so much easier if you just hold on to your own perspective on things and make the decision from only that perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think that ultimately those become unbalanced decisions. Now, when you walk around it and you understand that every group of stakeholders, you know, sees an issue from a different perspective, it makes the decision much harder because sometimes there just isn't a decision that you can make in a situation that satisfies everybody. Right. And, and so you got to struggle, though, with how do we make a decision in this situation with the, going forward with the knowledge of all these other perspectives. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think what we do, and, and we recently published a paper on this, and I had to class read it. I think one of the lines that I spent a lot of time writing in the paper was that equally legitimate stakeholders can have adverse interests on the same issue. Mm-hmm. You know, employees want to raise. Well, stockholders want returns. Right. There is a little bit of a zero-sum game there. And I think when you step into a leadership position, and I think you, A, have to have eyes for all the stakeholders— Otherwise, I just think you make a real narrow-minded, narrow-visioned, kind of unbalanced choice. But when you look at it from everyone's perspective, it becomes a challenge. But I think it becomes something that you ought to struggle with. If you were to put your finger on a value that folks need to lean into in order to embrace that process— what would that be? Well, I, I think it's, you know, there, there's a lot of cliches we could throw out here. We could talk about, you know, inclusion. 
we could we could talk about uh, you know again the idea of learning in public and and inviting the stranger. But I, I guess as I think about leaning into that, it's it's really a value of do you want to know the truth? Do you want to really know what do you want to know what the elephant is? You know, because some people don't want to know what the elephant is because they have held on so tight to that tail or that tusk or that trunk, they, they don't want their life complicated by the fact that maybe a person who views something very, very different from me, that they might have a valid perspective. Mm-hmm. Because that, that tends to mess with us a bit. You know, and I think about one of the things that Chantel always says when, when it's she's inviting the stranger. She says, "Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Talk me more." I used to work for a guy uh, in Portland named Fred Wagner, and he'd always say, "Help me understand what your thinking is there." And but that comes from a value that says, "I want to understand." Isn't and, that humility? Yeah, I think it is. It is. A, there is a dimension of humility there because you can't do that if you believe that that of course I am right because after all it's me, you know. And 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 so you're right. I think there's an element of humility there. I think there's an element of holding your views lightly. Hmm. I think I think there's. A, I don't know if, if humility is the opposite of arrogance, but certainly to to say that. You know, the handle I have on the truth is the end-all, be-all angle. Uh, That's obviously arrogant. And so whatever the opposite of that is, it says, you know, I got one perspective on this. I wonder what someone else's perspective is on this. Let's just zoom out really fast and give um, listeners, for those who aren't familiar with Gracious Space, Gracious Space is the essentially the curriculum of Leadership Montana, right? Yeah, there's a leadership curriculum, which I teach, and then there's the, the Gracious Space curriculum, which is kind of how you interact, the kind of the container for the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the two parallel tracks of instruction that are in Leadership Montana. And the four pillars of Gracious Space are spirit setting invite the stranger and learn in public right and you continue to circle around the topic of spirit and say say you know former student walks up to you and says you know you brought this spirit x spirit to to me and that influenced me what what would you hope they would say uh you need to understand that a lot of my teaching at the university is really nerdy stuff like <laughs> quantitative analysis and supply chain and inventory control and things like that. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of scary when you talk about how did that make you feel? You know, it's kind of like, like a, a, a slide I used to have when I taught statistics that said if I, if I knew this was my last day on earth – I'd spend it in my statistics class because it would seem so much longer. Uh, so, but if I had a wish for the, you know, completely apart from the nuts and bolts of any content, I would hope they would pick up this idea that one of the things I've tried to do in, in my 
teaching career, whether it's Leadership Montana, whether it's in the College of Business here at the University of Montana, when I did leadership training for the Forest Service, uh, among all those, I've always been kind of an integrator, kind of a field spanner. It's easy for us to get a hold of one thing that is true, and it's very clear to us that it's true because it's in our hand, but there's other things that are true as well, and we need to find a way to integrate them into some cohesive whole. And I hope that what, what the, the feeling that people would take from that is, if you walk around it, if you investigate it, that you'll see that the pieces start fitting together. And then when we argue with one another about our different perspectives, if we really believe that we are having a conversation about the same thing and it's an integrated whole and that we just have a different perspective on it, maybe that can lead to some understanding. I get it. I saw that on the Leadership Montana website that your favorite word is truth. Yeah. And now I get it, right? You're a truth seeker and you're trying to equip people essentially with the tools to find the, the whole truth, yeah, not that, just that, theirs. That, that is my fifth value. Okay. I yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is. If we were talking about our values earlier and, and I have values of you know productivity and efficiency and things like that and trust, but you're right, the truth. And the truth in the sense of not that I got the tail of the elephant, and by golly, I don't care what you think you have when you're holding on to the tusk. You know, I have the tail, and that is the truth, that we have to, I think, step further back and get an integrated view of the whole if we really want to know what's true. I'm curious, Jerry, what does a better Montana look like to you? If I had, if I had to characterize what a better Montana look like. And we it would be, again, it gets back to this idea of, of integration. It's always interesting because usually one of the later sessions we have, and, and this is by design, this goes all the way back to 2002, 2003, when I was on the organizing committee and we were building the structure of the curriculum, that we've, we felt people had to go see Montana. And they had to see Montana from different perspectives. And I find it very interesting that when we do things like, you know, go to Glasgow or Sydney or Miles City or Glendive, you know, go to one of the, the smaller cities in Montana, or when we go on to one of the Native American reservations, that it's, it's, it's really fun for me to see you know, you know, large chunk of our class are from the, you know, big seven, you know, urban areas in Montana. But what they learn is that, boy, do issues look different from Sydney than they do from Bozeman. But I think that the better Montana is when we can, you know, go, again, going back to the story of the, of the visually impaired people and the elephant, they can say, you know what? That's a totally different perspective than mine. But somewhere in here is a common beast, a common animal, that we just have different ends of it, and that where better Montana comes in is where we can somehow integrate and connect that. Hmm. And I really think that's where the better Montana comes from. 
you know, just in, in terms of a micro thing, you know, people in, you know, this is not a perfect dichotomy, but I think there's a real strong element of truth to, uh, you know, to this as far as urban-rural, and urban-rural is not only an issue in Montana, it's an issue in our country, it's an issue in our world. <laughs> and rural areas tend to be wealth-producing areas, and urban areas tend to be wealth-consuming areas. And I know what you're saying is, say, oh, no, no, we got the oil refinery in Billings. That produces wealth. Yeah, and how are you going to do that if you don't have people out in Sydney and Cutbank, you know, producing oil? And people in Great Falls say, hey, we got the flour mills here. You know, that produces value. Well, how do you do that without, you know, 10,000 grain farmers in the Golden Triangle? And someone in Missoula says, hey, we have all these cool microbrews, you know, and, and all these microbreweries. And wow, that's another whole new layer of value. Well, good luck if you don't have the malting barley that comes from the Fairfield bench. And, you know, earlier we were talking about, you know, when I teach supply chain and I do these projects with students where they got to take a product and they got to look at this business from end to end and where it comes from way up the supply chain all the way down and again you start seeing that this value stream is integrated and again just like the you know the visually impaired people in India who you know encounter the elephant and and just like when we go out to to uh uh, Native American lands, when we go out to rural areas and when rural people, uh, you know, come to urban areas, we start seeing, yeah, we see things differently, but really we just have a different part of the elephant. Mm -hmm. And that better Montana is when we start seeing this as an integrated whole. Now, again, doesn't make it easier because, you know, there are competing values, but we got to start by saying, you know, I understand why this is a value for you where you're at and you are intrinsically connected to me, so it better be part of my values. As you're moving towards this towards this sort of instruction goal of helping people understand that the, the perspective of someone from Sydney and someone from Billings and someone from Haver are all different and valid. I'm wondering, Frank Garner, who is up in the Flathead, uh, interviewed him maybe a month ago, and former chief of police, longtime legislator. He said that our differences are actually where our strength comes from, and that that is the history of this nation. And that is so difficult for me to wrap my mind around in many ways, right? It resonates deeply in in some ways, and in others, it is really difficult to wrap my head around. So when you think about these different perspectives, these differences across our state, do you see them as a source of strength? Well, there, I think there's two sides to that. <laughs> there's two perspectives on that. Our differences can be a wedge between us. Because there are aspects of if we look at urban versus rural in Montana, if we look at different interest groups, there is an aspect of that that is 
a zero-sum game, that what you get, I have to lose, and what I get, you have to lose. There is a zero-sum gameness to it, particularly on the surface. So I don't think that our differences are automatically our strength. Our differences can be strengths only if we start going back deeper into them and finding where, in fact, that, that our values connect and we're integrated. And I think in many, many situations, we find those common values. I think they are there. And even if we don't get down deep enough to where, you know, we got something that just really binds us together, the whole process of looking for those common values tend to bind us together as well. I'm curious, as you've gone through all these cohorts of Leadership Montana, what you've observed as uh, as things that that catalyze that process and things that you've observed that get in the way? Oh, that's that's a that's a good a good question because because ultimately this all gets down to how you and I treat each other, and so what's going to bind us over a particular issue uh, may be different than what binds other people together. But I think what catalyzes this is when I start seeing you as a person. I think it starts with the premise that you are a person, you are of value, uh, your perspective is important. Again, getting back to a lot of the gracious space things, I think that's what we bring to the conversation is this belief that you as a person are important and valuable. If there's a secret sauce in Leadership Montana, it's the fact that we force people from really diverse backgrounds, from really diverse perspectives, to come together and learn to embrace each other as people. Because, let's face it, we're never going to agree on some of the big things, but we can learn to be civil and approach them as a problem-solving exercise. Because again, if you haven't picked this up, I believe that probably the solution to problems come from these integrated solutions. Uh, but I'm probably never going to change your fundamental perspective and values on you know some of the big hot button issues in society. But if instead of this, if we don't, if we quit looking at these as you know things that fracture us and wedges that drive us apart, and start viewing them as problems to be solved. Now, how can we construct solutions that really solve these problems? I think, again, that's when our differences become our strengths. I want to invite you to share a story of your choosing. It could be anything, and it could be something from the Leadership Montana classes that you've experienced, anything you want to talk about? Well, the, the thing that comes to mind is uh, organizing committee for Leadership Montana. And I was there because I was on the, uh, the, the board of the Montana Chamber of Commerce Foundation. And uh, the, the folks of Leader, I think Bruce Wittenberg came to our meeting wanting to use our 501c3 as a vehicle to get this organization off the ground. And so we totally agreed with that. Webb Brown was there. And so Webb Brown and I ended up on the organizing committee. 
And I believe our first meeting was up in the conference room in First Interstate Bank in Billings. And there's, you know, about 30, 35 of us around the table. And it's people like, uh, you know, Carmen McSpadden and Bruce Wittenberg and Sharon Peterson were there. And, of course, uh, Tom Scott and Jane Karras from Flathead Valley Community College. And I still have some emails on that original distribution list. So, of course... Tradition of Leadership Montana, we go around, we give our two-breath introduction, and we introduce ourselves. So it starts somewhere around the middle of the table, and it comes around to me, and I'm up kind of at one end of the table. And so I say, boy, do I have this covered? Because I can say, hey, I'm Jerry Evans. I teach at the, in the College of Business at the University of Montana. And it was, you know, what's an interesting thing about you? And I said, I went to the two-room grade school at Swan Lake, Montana. Oh, interesting. So it goes on around, and then it comes to another individual that I'd never met, Ron Sextant, who was the chancellor up at MSU Billings, uh, and who then went on to serve as the chair of the Leadership Montana Board of Governors. So he stood up and said, hi, I'm Ron Sexton. I'm the chancellor up at MSU Billings, and I went to the one-room schoolhouse at Swan Lake, Montana. And I said to her, and I said, what are the odds of two people that we were, he was maybe five, six years older than me. The two-room school was almost brand new when I got there, and it used to be a one-room one school. What are the odds of two people that went to a little, tiny, podunk, rural school in Montana on 20 miles of dirt road, either direction to even get to pavement, let alone civilization. And here we are both up here in the boardroom at uh, First Interstate Bank on this organizing committee for Leadership Montana. You know, just absolutely amazing to me. Jerry, what are you proudest of in terms of your contribution to Leadership Montana or, or Leadership Montana's contribution to the state? Well, I'll let others decide what my contribution was. So last June, a year ago June, so you know, 11 months ago, we did our first annual Leadership Montana for Legislators. Mm-hmm. And and the Arthur M. Blank Foundation, uh, we uh, Chantel wrote a grant and they funded us and, and we got to spend a week at uh, West Creek Ranch in, uh, you know, Paradise Valley south of Livingston. And, of course, the, the Arthur M. Blank Foundation sponsored the whole thing, food, lodging, horseback rides, and everything else. And so we invite two cohorts of legislators in, 20 in each group, uh, First group there, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday till about noon. The second group, Monday or Wednesday at noon through Friday. And these were people who a couple months earlier during the legislative session, uh, uh, I, 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 this is not true, but it will illustrate the thing. They were hating themselves, each other, very publicly in editorials and newspaper articles. I mean, there was a lot of acrimony in that legislature. And so they all came together. And I remember I was there with Chantel and she said, well, for a long time, we've been hoping for this, Jerry. So here it is, I hope it works. And we had Pat Hughes out uh, to teach Gracious Space. And when each of those cohorts were leaving, 
they were hugging each other saying, oh, be sure to let me know how that works out for your grandson, you know. And, and they said, you know, we never get to do this in the legislature. We never get to see each other as people. We only see each other, you know, as someone on the other side of an issue. And I remember leaving West Creek after that week and saying, yeah, that was what the vision of Max Baucus and Judy Martz and Tom Scott and Bruce Wittenberg and others back there in 2002, 2003, when we started Leadership Montana. And to see that culminate there with that first Leadership Montana for legislators and to see how just a couple days together, learning a little bit about gracious space, fly fishing on the pond, horseback riding, trying to hit golf balls at, at, at the, on their golf course there, how, how they can start seeing each other as people. And I drove away from, from West Creek uh, that day with this sense of saying, you know what, you've spent, you put 20 years into this, uh, this is worth it. All right, you ready for the lighting round? Are you familiar with this? Yeah, right. Your definition of leadership. Leadership is having a vision that other people will accept as their own and follow you. Do you have a book recommendation? Multiple Regression by Cohen and Cohen. <laughs> uh, I, do, I, I do like the book, but it's called Seven Lenses Leadership. Jerry, what is the most important thing you can teach your two sons? You know, Chir Churchill said that you make a living by what you make, but you make a life by what you give. And in that same vein, I, I don't recall who said this, but it's the idea that you you don't go out and, and find your purpose in life. You go out and make your purpose in life. So I think it's it's kind of that sort of thing, that, that life is not a quest to find meaning. Life is a quest to go out and make meaning of your life. Hmm. And again, it's going to happen in areas where you don't even imagine. What gives your life meaning? Well, I— I certainly like, I'm 73 years old and I'm still teaching at the, in the College of Business at the university. Uh, not because I think the content that I teach is you just can't live your life without knowing how to do, you know, a, an ARIMA forecasting model. I think that's something useful in its place, but that's not the meaning of life. But I think it's this idea that for whatever you've been given, and like I shared with you earlier, all the people that contributed to my life at one at a time and place in life is that you you kind of have a, I think, a moral responsibility to return the favor with other people. And, and so I think that's what gives me meaning in life. And whether it's Leadership Montana, whether I'm teaching a real estate pre-licensing class or teaching people like you about, you know, time series models in a, in a class— Something's going to stick, and, and, it, and it's not going to be the thing you think, but uh, it's a way to give back to people. You've taught Leadership Montana for a long time, yeah. but I'm curious, what's the most important thing that you've learned from participants in Leadership Montana? Wow, Pe people are awesome. <laughs> and when we start at Big Sky, 
and everybody's strangers. And there's some people there who say, what have I gotten myself into? And then in a relatively short period of time, you start seeing this group of people gel and come together. The same thing is true. Uh, in my university classrooms, the same thing is true when I was doing leadership training for the Forest Service. I think people are, are, are pretty special, and they all have a story to tell, and, and every one of them are not only legitimate, but they really have something to offer one another. And I really see that in Leadership Montana. Do you have a bold prediction for the future? Well, when I teach forecasting, so you, you see, you've asked me a forecasting question. A, do I have a bold prediction? Yes, I think we may be close to our thousandth alumni. You know, when we graduate and put mm-hmm. the marbles in the jar, you know, may, maybe just breaking 900, but we're going to get there. Someday it's going to be 2,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think, I think leadership Montana has legs. And, and I think that uh, I, I was... And Chantel and I last week drove out to Ashland and Lame Deer, and we drove in the car. We had the whole bus load, but we always take a car in case, you know, someone, I mean, you got to have a car because you never know what's going to happen. So I got to spend this great time with Chantel, and we talked a little bit about this. I, th- I think this has legs. You know, eight, ten years ago, I don't know. You know, organizations come and go. But I, I think Leadership Montana is here to stay. Jerry, when you're afraid or overwhelmed, where do you turn? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I pray, mm. uh, you know, because if I'm if if I'm over my head, I hope there's a, you know, something bigger than me up there to help. But sometimes when you're afraid and overwhelmed, I was I was the first person on the scene of a pretty awful car accident. Uh, north of Great Falls in, I think, like 1971 or 1972, and it was a head-on collision. And I remember pulling over and heading down into the barrel pit, and it was awful. Two mangled cars, you know, people laying around, and, you know, you talk about scared. Uh, But what do you do? Well, you go render aid and do what you can and it was a very short time, and we had probably 100 people there. Uh, and then Highway Patrol showed up and everything. But I still remember, I was you know probably 21 years old, and uh, going down into that barrel pit, very afraid, very overwhelmed. And, I mean, it's just been so easy to just drive on and call 911, although I don't know if we had 911 then. But you just go down and... The first person you come to, you do what you can, and that's all you can do. So I, I tend to, when I'm overwhelmed, I, I start doing something. Jerry, what is something that makes you feel like a kid? Oh, I'm, I'm building a model railroad layout <laughs> in my basement, and that harks back to when I was a kid in, in our basement in Great Falls and my dad had trains. <laughs> and when we moved to Swan Lake, I remember we had a little HO layout. When my kids were born, we started with little Brio wooden railroad and then got electric trains. And I'm still playing with trains. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> they have sound in them now. 
I mean, it, they, they have computer chips in them, and you program the computer chip, and you can turn on the <laughs> bell and the whistle and the lights and everything and have sound. So I, I told you that I saw that your favorite word is trust, and I also saw that your favorite movie is The Notebook. Oh, I just have to know. I gotta hear an explanation. Well, you know, the Notebook is an. And, uh, first of all, I I like the Notebook. I was on a nonstop flight from Seattle to London. Yep. And that was one of the movies that was on. And I just have always liked James Garner, and, and that was one of the stars in that. You know, they had the two young actors and actresses Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams okay fine yeah yeah I you know different generation but I remember James Garner who was the old version of them okay and I remember James Garner from when he was on television with Maverick and then Rockford Files so I liked it because I really liked James Garner but in terms of the trust thing, you know, the, the story there is that this young couple meet and they have a tumultuous relationship and, 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 and particularly Ryan Gosling holds out for her. She, she could go marry the rich guy but comes, you know, to him. And then they grow old together and you see these glimpses of them when they are old. And she is suffering from dementia, has, has just brief moments where she is lucid and he, and and the James Garner character he is so faithful with her in terms of being there when she has these moments of lucidity boy if that's not trust i don't know what it is you know where we all have our moments with each other and sometimes those moments aren't too too good but if you but, but there's part of this trust we have to have with each other that to know that uh, no matter how, how strongly we disagreed about something, if I have a flat tire on my way out of Helena after a rancorous debate on the house floor, you know what, and you come up behind me, you're gonna stop and help me change my tire. It goes back to that Montana core value and that trust and, and the notebook kind of captured that. Jerry Evans. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Eric. Thanks to Dr. Jerry Evans for taking the time to come on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to support Listen First Montana, please tell a friend about the show or post your favorite episode on social media. Those small steps can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.